down women with diluted dreams of hope for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. Most of us have heard the phrase, drop the ball. And just hearing these words probably conjures up a negative personal memory. But what does this simple three-word phrase actually mean? According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, dropping the ball means to make a mistake, especially by doing so in a careless way. When we consider this in our own lives, we might reflect on an error we made or an opportunity we missed. There are notable examples of the biggest missed business opportunities, such as Alexander Graham Bell creating a device he referred to as a telephone, which was a contraption capable of transferring speech across a great distance. He offered to sell its patent to Western Union for $100,000, and he bragged to them that one day there would be a telephone in every city. Western Union said he was being absurd and referred to his invention as idiotic, and they declined his offer. Another notable major blunder occurred in the entertainment business when a group of hippie-type misfits auditioned for a company known as Decca Records. The foursome was told that the days of guitar groups had come and gone. So Decca's management passed on this group, who called themselves the Beatles, and instead signed a more polished beat band named Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Most certainly, if either of these companies could have a do-over, they wouldn't make the same mistake twice. A mistake that ultimately cost them countless millions of dollars. But there are miscalculations happening every day that affect a commodity much more important than money. And the value of that asset comes in the form of a human life. Be it an error, a lapse in judgment, or an oversight, when a misstep occurs in a matter of life or death, there are no do-overs. During these past few weeks, we've delved into the life of a mother of six named Betty Dyer, who disappeared from a local laundromat on New Year's Eve day in 1972. For lack of a better word, mistakes were made during the early investigative work on Betty's case. We learned that her boyfriend and daughter removed her car from the location of the crime scene and returned it to Betty's driveway. We learned that Betty's sordid past might have led some to believe 
that she had lapsed back into her habit of drinking, thus causing some confusion as to the severity of her situation. But the biggest error in judgment just might have occurred months before Betty's disappearance. While reading and reviewing several incident reports from that time period, I came across a statement that was quite interesting and its details soon became quite infuriating. Tucked away in the hundreds of pages of material was a supplementary offense report entitled, I Was Raped. The date on the report was September 20th 1972, and the actual event took place shortly after midnight. At approximately 2.30 in the morning, a woman entered the Mansfield Police Department and reported that she was at the Westinghouse laundromat at 404 South Diamond Street at 12.15 a.m. and was approached by a man, whom she described in great detail and said that he was wearing a bandana around his face, revealing only his eyes and head. He produced a gun, ordered her to go outside, demanded that she close her eyes, and then he blindfolded her. He proceeded to drive for a short time, parked the car, ordered her to remove her clothes, and then raped her. Throughout the incident, the attacker talked to the victim, sharing details about himself, bragging about being offered several football scholarships that he turned down, and then complaining about his wife, who was unable to satisfy his physical needs. On the way back to the laundromat, the victim made note of the car's interior and was able to provide a meticulous description to the officer, including the fact that it did not sound like it had an exhaust system because it was very, very loud, and it had a stereo tape deck located to the left of the steering column, and its inside door locks were missing. Her attacker allowed her to leave the vehicle, not knowing that she had kept the multicolored towel that he had wrapped around her eyes and face. And she reported that she had a safety pin holding her bra together and that she had lost the pin in the assailant's car. After recording the information about her rape, the victim was taken to the hospital for an exam and the officer conferred with several other officers to compile a list of potential suspects based upon the victim's account and description. The group immediately came up with the names of four potential suspects. About eight hours later, the victim returned to the police station and provided additional details about the offense. She stated that she initially thought his motive for taking her was robbery because he asked her how much money she had and if she could get more. The assailant told her that he was wanted for kidnapping, but that he wanted money in order to buy drugs. 
The report then goes on to record a very graphic description of the sexual assault and paints a very demoralizing image of the victim. In order to safeguard the ears and minds of our younger listeners, I will not share those graphic details. So at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, so there might have been a victim prior to Betty. Well, hold on, because there's much more to the story. Later that same night, an officer reports for duty and is informed about the rape case from the previous evening. He asks the fellow officer if they had made an arrest in the case, and the colleague admitted that they had not. But he showed him the license plate number for the car that was wanted in reference to the rape. After reading the license number, this officer filed the following report, which was dated September 21st, 1972. At approximately 1.35 a.m. on September 20th, 1972, I was traveling north on Bowman Street, approaching the Longview Avenue intersection. At this time, I pulled my vehicle to the wrong side of the street, the left-hand side of the street, to call box number 25. I was parked on that side of the street, headed the wrong direction. At this time, I got out and pulled the box and reported in. I then got back into my cruiser and headed north on Bowman at a slow rate of speed, observing Ken and John's and the immediate area. As I was down to the area of Beulah Phase, I observed a vehicle approaching me and heading south on Bowman, off in the distance in the area of Charles Street. The report continued. This vehicle had one headlight and was coming in my direction. We met each other in the area of Harmon Avenue. This intersection is pretty well lit. As this vehicle went by me, I observed the driver of the vehicle to be a colored male leaning off to the right side of his seat. What was peculiar about this subject as he drove by and I observed him was that he appeared to have someone else with him that he was either choking because he had his right arm around the subject's neck and he appeared to be choking the person or possibly pushing them down like trying to duck them. The car was dark in color. I thought it might have been black or dark blue, and it was a 63 Oldsmobile four-door. The vehicle had a real loud exhaust on it, and I almost stopped and was going to turn around and go after this subject and give him a warning or citation about only having one headlight. As the vehicle passed me, I almost stopped my cruiser. I turned my head around and observed the registration to this car. The registration on the car was VT5537. It also had the left taillight out. The left headlight was out and the left taillight was out on the car. 
due to the very minor nature of the violation, I decided against turning around and going after this subject. What stuck in my mind, though, is as this subject passed, his head was silhouetted. But the subject that he had pinned against his chest, there was no definite outline of even a hairdo or a head or a face at all. There was something wrong, and it could have been the subject was blindfolded with a towel. There was something wrapped around her head. Now remember, this officer filed this report 24 hours after his shift, and in regards to learning that that vehicle's license plate number was exactly the same as the vehicle the rape suspect was driving. But 24 hours earlier, on the night of the rape, the rape victim gave such a detailed description of the assailant's car, including its license plate number, that officers located and surrounded the vehicle while she was still at the police station. Ironically, this very same officer who decided not to pull over a suspicious person driving a car with a broken headlight, broken taillight, and evidently choking someone, he received a call just an hour or so later to assist other units who were watching a parked car. A car with the same license plate number as the one he let slip by. A car that was allegedly used by a criminal to kidnap a woman from a local laundromat and rape her at gunpoint. If hearing all of this has raised your hackles, has gotten your dander up, or has simply infuriated you, then you better brace yourself because you ain't heard nothing yet. Water down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered-down women. Weekend in light While searching for love No pain in this world With no help from above